Thank you so much, ladies. What a beautiful way to ponder just who this baby is. Thank you, Dan. I love starting that way. You know, as I've dug in lately about studying Jesus as the king, we've come to that part in our study of him in the role of prophet, priest, and king. And this particular study has been one of the most personally challenging studies that I've ever done. Because, you know, we all want to have a teacher, a prophet, who's going to show us the way, right? Everybody wants to have a priest. That's somebody who bridges the gap between us and God. But how many of us are eager to embrace a ruler over us? If you're willing this morning to jump in with me for a challenge about the reason that this baby was born to be the king. I'd like to invite you to get out the program in the program these listening notes along with a pen and let's find out just why he came to be our king. You know before Christ's birth the people of God had been looking for hundreds of years for the arrival of this king because like the Lindsay family read for us they had heard through the prophet Zechariah that God was going to send a king. And I imagine they thought to themselves, oh, a king is going to fix everything. And like Zechariah said, God told them to rejoice greatly. He said, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, when the people heard that word king, they must have just thought, bring him on. They must have thought, finally. But they ignored part of that promise. They ignored the humble part, the donkey part. They just kind of heard the salvation part. They pictured a conquering war horse. And you can't blame them because they were suffering under the oppression of the Romans. So they were eager to embrace somebody who could get Rome off their back and Caesar out of their hair. You know, they must have thought, a king, a king is a king. And you know, a king is somebody who conquers, someone who's in charge. But God had some, something else in mind. Have you noticed how a word can mean one thing to somebody and something else entirely to somebody else? We have a friend named Dick who tells a story about just that thing happening. He had gone with his new wife, Judy, back to the southern state of Arkansas to meet her family for the first time. And now, I love the southern accent of, of southerners. I mean, it's so endearing to me because my mom is from Mississippi. And so I just think this story, it just cracks me up. He said that when he got to Arkansas, that the family tried to engage him in conversation. They would say, well, do you hunt? And he'd say no. And they'd say, do you fish? And he'd say no. And he said that was pretty much the end of the conversation. <laughs> And finally, one of the nephews jumped in deeper and said, well, what do you do? And Dick, now he had been in aviation for years, so he said, well, I sell Piper airplanes. Well, the nephew kind of looked confused and scratched his head and said, how come you sell Piper airplanes? <laughs> Piper airplanes. Uh-huh, you're getting it. Got to catch on there. Total disconnect, right? Sounds the same, means something different. Well, the people of Israel heard the word king. They thought they knew what that word meant. I like how Cornelius Plantiga says it. They were looking for a man who could become their king. 
What they got was their king who had become a man, God incarnate, God with a thumbprint, and for all we know, seasonal hay fever. (laughs) No royal birth. He was an ordinary-looking baby laid in a feeding trough. And this king was given the most unlikely arrival to the humblest of people, people of no significance. I mean, Galilee was considered the backwoods, and Nazareth was considered a dump. But history got split right apart by the arrival of this baby because he was the king, the eternal king. And I'd like to ask you right now first to step back, just take a bird's eye view with me at this king. Consider two things right off the top with me. Take your pen and write this down. Christ's kingdom is twofold. First of all, it's external. You could say it's universal. If we can only wrap our minds around it, it's like the dance portrayed. This baby is the Lord of all creation. I mean, he guides, he rules, he orders all things in the universe. I think how many times in the Bible that Jesus is referred to as the Lord, as the king. These are just a few of the times. Maybe you'd like to use this list later on in your own personal study. Remember when Gabriel talked to Mary? He told her that this baby would be the eternal king. This was before Jesus was conceived. Gabriel said, of his kingdom there will be no end. And then every true king has a herald, right? Remember the heralding of the angels to those shepherds? Hark, the herald angels sing. You know what? When I was a kid, I had no idea what a herald was. I just knew there there had to have been an angel up there whose name was Harold. (laughs) What about the wise men? They came saying, where is this baby born the king? And then Jesus himself, he talked about the kingdom of God, right? He spent a lot of time opening it up to us, telling us what God is up to. Then there was Palm Sunday. That's when Zechariah's prophecy came to pass. And Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a young donkey. And then a week later, in front of Pilate, Jesus agreed, he consented, both of those instances, that he indeed was the king. In Ephesians, we're told that Jesus is seated as king in heaven today. And then in Revelation, we're told that even world powers are subject to him. I'm talking about governments who appear untouchable. They are under Christ's authority. Wow. And that's just a few of the times in the Bible that we're told that Jesus is the king. Now, honestly, I just want to be real with you. Sometimes when I read that list about Christ's rule, those lofty statements, and then I look at the news, sometimes for me there's just a disconnect. just, Just being honest with you, sometimes my brain wants to question I might say to myself, well, it sure doesn't look like he's sovereign or that he's in charge. You know, for some of us, this can actually be a deal breaker. Some people never get beyond these hard questions. In fact, they can allow these questions to derail their pursuit of God. That happened for Steve Jobs of Apple Computer. In a biography of Jobs' life, Walter Isaacson tells about it. He said that in 1968, Life magazine published a shocking cover showing a pair of starving children in Biafra. Steve Jobs was 13 then, 
He saw it, and he took that to church. He hid it behind his back, and he confronted the pastor. He said, listen, if I raise my finger, will God know which finger I'm going to raise before I do it? And the pastor said, yeah, God knows everything. And then Steve pulls out that cover of life, and he says, well, does God know about these children and what's going to happen to them? And the pastor said, Steve, I know this is hard for you to get, but yes, God knows about that. That's all he said. The pastor's answer underestimated that teen's intellect. According to Isaacson, Jobs walked away from the church that day and never returned. This brilliant and inquiring young soul was asking a valid question, but there was no discussion offered. There was no reason to believe the gospel in spite of evil. And Jobs announced that he didn't want to have anything to do with worshiping a God like that. Do you remember the children's prayer that says, God is great, God is good? Well, apparently, Jobs thought that either God wasn't good enough to care about those children's plight, or maybe he wasn't great enough to do anything about it. See, it's a tension for us to manage when we're hurting, when we're looking at suffering. But I believe we need to wrestle with these questions We don't have to commit intellectual suicide in order to worship Christ as our king. And I want to be very sensitive here because somebody here or maybe somebody watching online today is looking suffering in the face. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe you're going through a tragedy and you're wondering, how could God allow this? You know, Jesus knew the worst of suffering from the inside and he is compassionate. I'd like to read some of Dallas's Willard's, Dallas Willard's words to you. Dallas was a really smart guy. In fact, he was the director of the philosophy department at USC. I actually need a Dallas for Dummies book. But his thoughts have helped me and Ron as we have talked about this tension. And this is a long quote, but it's really worth it. So here here is what Dallas said. Either your view of God will determine your view of human suffering or your view of human suffering will determine your view of God. Your view of God is important. He goes on, if you believe God is good enough and great enough, then you're going to see suffering as something that is always redeemed by God. If not here, then there. But if you don't have a great God then your experience of human suffering is just going to make him smaller and you're going to struggle. Can you believe that God is good enough so that the child who is dying of starvation in the Sudan will step through the portals of glory and be thankful to have existed? That's part of what the cross is about, the redemption of suffering, that beyond the cross there is resurrection and life you got to have a God who is doing something so glorious and so great in this universe and who is in himself so wonderful and has such power and goodness that there's nothing that he cannot bring out right in the end. Maybe you're thinking about some situation that you're longing to see him bring out right in the end. Well, we've been looking at the series called Behold the King. You know, behold means to pay attention, to look at him intently, to engage your mind as well as your heart. 
because Christianity is a rational belief system. And just like Steve Jobs was given a choice about what to do with this king, you and I are given a choice as well. In fact, that's precisely what the other side of this kingdom of Jesus is, is about. See, we, we, we said it's a twofold kingdom, right? It's external, but it's also internal. You might want to write that down. You might say it's personal. It's personal because every person has a kingdom, a queendom. In the heart of every individual is a throne. Now, what is a kingdom? Well, this is how you could define it. The range of our effective will. It's where your will has an effect. A realm that is uniquely your own. You may not think you control anything, but there's something. To try to figure out what your kingdom looks like, think about what matters to you. We have a friend who loves to cook. The kitchen is his domain, and I remember the time we got to taste his cooking. And we learned that day that his rule was that nobody gets to taste the food before it's time to sit down for that meal. And we learned that if you want to get stabbed with a fork, just try to reach in for a taste while that food's still sitting on the stovetop. Our friend's kingdom is the kitchen. You know, every person has a kingdom. It's what it means to be a person. You were made to have dominion in some area within an appropriate domain. In fact, in Genesis 1, it says that God assigned us to collectively rule over all living things on earth. But the thing is, God equipped us for this task by framing our nature to function in an interactive, conscious personal relationship with him where we say even in the domain that I care about the most I'm going to acknowledge that you are the king you know it's really a shift from calling him the king to being able to say you are my king it's saying to him I'm going to move into a realm where I trust you and I'm going to become your servant It's when we turn the throne over and we call him Lord. He becomes your companion at that point and you become his co-worker. Now, Lord, that's a word we throw around easily, isn't it? But what does it mean to call him Lord? That's when the king says to you, I want to have total control of every dimension of your life. I want to be supreme even in your thoughts. Look at this verse in 2 Corinthians. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And watch this. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. I don't know about you. My thoughts are pretty squirrely. It says to take every thought captive. You know, recently there was a guy that I encountered at work who just kind of rubbed me wrong. I mean, in my thoughts, I just wanted to push him out. But our Love Everyone Always series has alerted me that there is a judge inside me. So I brought that thought, that visceral response to God. And I said, Lord, I need your help to take this thought captive. And now I'm beginning to pray that the Lord will bring that guy back in front of me so I can begin to express the love of Christ. It's a process and it's costly to make him the king, to call Christ our Lord. 
But you know, the king isn't just about his authority and our submission to him. He's also about his protection for us and our security. In fact, if you'll turn your notes over to the back side, let's talk about two ways that Christ's lordship brings me security. First, it increases my dominion. You might say, what? Well, Jesus told a parable where he said, this is what our master says to us when we make him the king and allow him to call the shots. In Matthew, the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Will you take your pen and underline that? Set you over much. He says, enter into the joy of your master. You see, making Christ king doesn't make you less important. He wants to set you over much. He constantly invites us into a larger share of what he's doing. I love this little book. It's about Frank Laubach. In fact, it's called Letters by a Modern Mystic. This was a guy who back in the 30s was a single missionary in the Philippines. And he did a personal experiment on himself of moment-by-moment submission to Christ. He began cultivating a habit of turning his thoughts over to the Lord for one second out of every minute. And he said that after only four weeks, he said this, I feel simply carried along each hour, doing my part in a plan which is often far beyond myself. This sense of cooperation with God in little things is what so astonishes me. I need something and turn around to find it waiting for me. I must work to be sure, but there is God working along with me. He says the whole texture of his life was transformed. God raised Frank Laubach up from being a lone missionary in the Philippines to becoming a spokesman for Christ who impacted the whole world without ever being appointed to a, a political position. He was influential on foreign policy after World War II. And his methods for teaching illiterate people how to read, where he would also grab the chance to tell them about Christ, those methods set a new standard for worldwide literacy instruction. And some of those methods are still used today. Now, because Frank Laubach was a man who submitted himself to Christ and cooperated with the king, he knew his brilliant ideas came from his practice of interfacing with God in a constant way. Well, think about you. The Lord made you to occupy the space where you are planted with savvy, with effectiveness, in an interactive relationship with him. But it starts with making him Lord, and then he'll show you what's next, and your dominion will increase. But there's another benefit when we submit what and where we are to the king. And it's at the end of the verse we just read in Matthew. It says, enter into the joy of your master. Would you circle that word joy? See, this is another way it secures you to make Christ Lord. It enables me to meet life with joy and strength. We hear about Christmas joy, right? It can sound like a euphemism sometimes when you're in the Christmas rush. Maybe you have an extra grace-required relative coming, and just thinking about it just fills you with stress. Or maybe the stress of the push to get ready is catching up with you. Maybe for you, Christmas joy feels more like this picture. <laughs> My favorite Christmas picture. 
<laughs> but really, when you have put yourself under the king's protection, you know what's normal is a life of joy and strength. I love all the connections that this verse from Psalms makes. Look at this. The Lord, would you underline Lord? That's when you establish his rule in your life. The Lord is my strength, my shield from every danger. I trust in him with all my heart and he helps me. And my heart is filled with joy. Now watch this part. I burst out in songs of thanksgiving. Yeah, some of you might be thinking, you wouldn't want to hurt, hear me burst out in a song. Well, you know, this is a discussion at our house because some of you know that my husband has a bit of a challenge with pitch. He says he stands over here in the front so nobody can hear him sing. I keep telling him, though, he's getting better. He really is. There's going to be some kind of joyful noise that comes from you when you have trusted Christ as your king. You know, maybe you're not a singer. Maybe it's going to come out in your, your speech. Maybe you're going to talk with words of gratitude or encouragement for others. Maybe you're not even a verbal person. Maybe you're going to plant some flowers or fix somebody's car. For goodness sake, some of us are just going to smile. Something is going to be different about your persona when you've trusted Christ to be your king. I want to show you a picture of Dennis. This is Dennis, and, and she's been home with the Lord for about a month now. Some of you may have met her right up here on the front row in the second service. She's tried to be there for the last three years of her life. And you know, Dennis was born with a hip problem. She had a polio as a child. She was injured badly as a child, and she had four hip replacements on the same hip over the course of her 92-year life. She had chronic pain, she had surgeries gone badly awry, and yet I've never met a more positive, joyful, eager, singing follower of Jesus. And, and I'm going to show you one of Dennis's joyful expressions of her contentment. This is Dennis dressed up as the cat in the hat. She's posing with a Grinch. She has so many zany costumes. Laughter was her signal that she was trusting the Lord. You know, the joy of the Lord really can be your strength. I knew her when she had Alzheimer's, and she still gushed with joy. So what is joy? Let's just write down a little simple definition. I've heard it described as a pervasive, ongoing sense of well-being. Like Megan read for us, it's different than happy. Joy is found in a person. So what follows joy is strength. And joy really is possible when we're living in the kingdom of God here and now. See, it's firmly established even in times of suffering in knowing that the all-sovereign king loves you too much to allow anything in your life that would lead to your ultimate harm. So here's the question for you and me. How do we do it? I mean, if you wanted to make Christ the king of your life, maybe you're ready to go from this external kingdom of his and move into the internal side of his lordship, from the universal to the personal. You might want to change from just calling him the king, and you might want to begin to call him my king. Well, I want to give you four simple ways to go about that. It's not really a list to, to check it's more of a heart to cultivate. The first thing is to believe in the cross. 
Acknowledge the need that you have for the cross. There's a guy named Michael Kinsley. He's a political commentator who heard the claim that America is getting more and more hostile to religion. So he responded to that. And he said, basically, that's bull, that this is basically a very religious nation. He says people aren't hostile to God, that practically everyone is a Christian. Let me tell you, he's wrong because he's defined things wrong. In fact, just to look at the headlines helps us to see how important it is for us to get really clear about this. The Bible doesn't say that people are hostile to the concept of God. The Bible says people have trouble with the biblical God. The God who thunders from Mount Sinai and says, Be holy, for I am holy. The God who says, I am the Lord Almighty, who will by no means clear the guilty. See, the concept of holiness and guilt, those are unpopular ideas. But if you avoid any mention of sin, it allows you not to need a Savior. Some people use religion to avoid Jesus. They use morality to avoid his cross. So here's a question for us. Do you believe that you're a pretty good, decent, moral person? Or do you know that you're a sinner and that you're helpless and that you have no hope of ever being received by God except for the price that Jesus paid for you on the cross? That's the starting place to making Christ your king. It's to believe in the cross as your only hope to be saved. It says in 1 Peter, he used his servant body to carry our sins to the cross so we could be rid of sin, free to live the right way. His wounds became your healing. There's another way that's important to make Christ your king, and that is to obey his word. Mary said it to Gabriel, and Jesus said it as he faced the cross. Not my will, but yours be done. Whatever he says in his word, you choose to do it, even if you don't understand it or like it. If you say, I'll I'll obey if it feels good, or I'll obey if it's practical or popular, that's not obeying. Tim Keller points out that's not making him your king. What that is is making him your consultant. You know what a consultant is? It's somebody you pay to give you advice, and then you ignore what they say. And you and I, we can choose to treat Christ like that. It's an option where we listen to him and he's giving you recommendations and you're deciding when to forgive and you're deciding who you're going to sleep with and you're deciding what you're going to do and not do. That's when he's your consultant. But to make Christ your king, it means obeying him. Do you remember Eric Little, Chariots of Fire? That movie was just the start of his story, when he gained status as an athlete. But little knew that Jesus measures greatness in terms of service, not status. And he was so serious about serving Christ as his king that he went on to give up his freedom and ultimately his life as he made Christ his king. And here's what he said about obedience. You will know as much of God and only as much of God as you are willing to put into practice. You say, not my will, but yours be done. 
And then the last two parts kind of go together. It's stop worrying and start expecting. What does stopping your worry have to do with making Jesus Lord? Everything. Because, see, worrying is an insult to the king. Worrying is saying, I know how this universe should be going, okay? I know the outcome that my life has to have. And, you know, I'm not sure that God's going to get it right. Martin Luther had a friend who was a worrier. His name was Philippe Melanchthon. And Luther used to come up next to his friend and put his hand on his shoulder and say to him, let Philippe cease to rule the world. (laughs) Worrying is your choosing to try to rule the world yourself. And Jesus said, I tell you not to worry about everyday life, but seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So instead of worrying and looking into yourself for answers, you look up and you say to him, Jesus, I don't know everything. You're the king, you're God, and I'm going to trust you. You know what's best. And then you start expecting. Do you have situations in your life that feel like they're never going to change? Do you have people in your life whom you're tempted to give up on? Well, see, this is what Christmas is about. Gabriel comes to Mary and says to her, you're a virgin and you're going to conceive. And she says, how can this be? And Gabriel says, this is God we're talking about. With God, nothing is impossible. So start expecting. A holy expectancy because of who this king is. You know, the first time this king rode in, he was on a donkey. The next time he rides in, he's going to be on a white horse. Can you imagine that day? When every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. And you know what else? Every situation in your life is going to bow to him too. You know, we get to read about that day that's really coming. It's in Revelation. We read on that day he'll be on a white horse, that his eyes will be like flames of fire, that he'll have many crowns on his head, that he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And it says this in Revelation 19, 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Imagine that day. You and I can treat him today as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We can start expecting him to show up. And you know, God has so many creative ways of helping us grow this holy expectancy. And as we wrap up this morning, I'd like to share with you one way he's done that for me. And it's through the words of a pastor who served at an African-American church down in San Diego for 40 years. He's in heaven now, but I want you to hear his words. Because this man is not afraid to get excited about what's coming. You can tell this man has a personal acquaintance because he calls him my king. I want to ask you to listen to this man's joyful and hopeful expectancy. The Bible says my king is a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? 
my king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king. That's my king. Maybe you'd like to pause right now and let's talk to our king together. Lord God, we just thank you for the chance to celebrate that we've been invited to know you personally. You have come to us just like Zechariah promised. You are here and you are indeed our eternal king. And today, we want to follow your lead, Jesus. You came humbly, and so we come to you humbly. We bow before your authority. We want to ask you to come and occupy the throne within our own heart. Maybe you'd like to just say to him now, Lord, take the throne. I want to obey. I want, I want to believe in the cross, and I want to give you the throne to occupy all by yourself, Lord. 
I want to stop insulting you with low expectations about life, and I want to start expecting you to show up. And I thank you, thank you for inviting me to know you personally. We ask together as the body of Christ that you would reign and you would rule in this place. And Lord, individually, that you take over and be king, for you are my king. And we trust you in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.